Hello and welcome to episode 90 of Pay-Per-View, the podcast in which I review current events and place events and headlines in their true context. And the first subject of this episode is one of the big stories of the week, the Gary Lineker Match of the Day story. This is in the Daily Mail. Commentators and players join Match of the Day boycott, show to air with no host, pundits or interviews after after mutiny when BBC forced Gary Lineker off air due to Nazi tweet row and colleagues walked out in solidarity in worst crisis in the show's 59-year history. As I record this, uh, a deal has been reached where by uh, Gary Lineker will be presenting the show. When this article was written, there was no agreement at that time. Anyway, this is what the article says. Mash of the day is in crisis with no presenters, pundits, commentators and potentially even no players interviews for the first time in its nearly 60-year history after the BBC decision to boot Gary Lineker off-air led to mass walkouts. Lineker, 62, will not present the nation's flagship football show after the BBC decreed his Nazi jibe tweet that compared the Home Office's immigration policy to 1930s Germany breached impartiality rules. BBC bosses told the former England striker that he either had to stop his politicised posts or quit the BBC altogether. However, the match of the day star was roundly supported by colleagues with co-hosts Ian Wright and Alan Shearer staging a walkout in solidarity which started a mass exodus BBC staff from the programme in protest. It led to BBC bosses holding emergency talks to ensure the show could air on Saturday evening as usual. A senior source said it's now up to Lineker, he needs to choose. Pundits Alex Scott, Jermaine Genius, Mark Chapman and Michael Richards followed suit before the show's commentators boycotted the programme. A well-placed insider described the presenters' mutiny as a proper BBC crisis. There were even suggestions football players and managers could shun the BBC's interviews after matches over the weekend. BBC confirmed it was unable to find a presenter to fill the vacant hot seat and with no top commentators, the corporation may have to rely on the Premier League's world feed service. Regular match today commentator Steve Wilson said he and other talking heads had vowed not to participate in the next programme. He said, as commentators on match of the day, we have decided to step down from Saturday night's broadcast. We are comforted that football fans who want to watch their team should still be able to do so, as management can use world feed commentary if they wish. He added, in the circumstances, we do not feel it would be appropriate to take part in the programme. Announcing the changes to the show, BBC spokesperson said some of our pundits have said they don't wish to appear on the programme while we seek to resolve the situation with Gary. We understand their position. We have decided that the programme will focus on match action without studio presentation or punditry. A source close to Match of the Day told Mail Online that even the production team was considering walking in support of Gary Lineker and have contacted their union. However, they were cautious to go ahead because since then there has been no ballot action they won't be protected by law. At one stage, the BBC were facing the prospect of scrapping the episode altogether. Cancellation would have put them in breach of a £70 million a year contract with the Premier League. As it stands, I think anything is possible. A senior figure from Mash of the Day told Sports Mail an hour before the BBC confirmed the programme would go ahead in a statement released at 9.15pm. The uh, programme usually airs at 10.30. The BBC's Director of Sport, Barbara Slater, Head of TV Sport, Philip Burney and MOTD Editor Richard Hughes spent a night in crisis talks with production staff to ensure the show could go on. The last time Master of the Day was removed from the screen was 30 years ago when technical staff protested. The mass walkouts by BBC talent started when former Arsenal striker Ian Wright tweeted on Friday, Everybody knows what Master of the Day means to me, but I've told the BBC I won't be doing it tomorrow. Solidarity. Channel 5 news presenter Dan Walker, who also does stuff on could be BBC sport and football, said on air that Lineker told him they 
day being the BBC of talking I have to step back speaking on Channel 5 Newswalker said it's one of those strange situations where I'm actually texting the man himself at the moment and I've asked Gary Lineker the question about whether he's stepping back or whether the BBC have told him to step back and I've told him that if he responds to me that I will read out that text on air there's one word in there I can't use but he has said no they've told me I have to step back so Gary Lineker wants to continue to present match of the day and he's not apologised for what he said it's a BBC decision he says to force him to not present the programme at the moment. So this was last Saturday. Former Tory leader William Hague said it was appropriate for Gary Lineker to step back from hosting Match of the Day. He broke the guidelines, I think, of the BBC with comments that are highly politicised, which BBC presenters are not meant to do. So that's against the rules. We've got to do something about that. Otherwise, every presenter can do so on every programme, he told Times Radio. I think it is appropriate for him to step back. He said, I don't know if you can separate Lineker's personal social media and role as a BBC presenter. The BBC said Lineker would step back from presenting the programme until he and his bosses had reached an agreed and clear position on his use of social media. The BBC's highest paid star sparked a huge political row after comparing the language used to launch a new government crackdown on migrants arriving across the Channel in small boats to 1930s Germany. Elsewhere, members of the public who support Lineker will likely view his ban as a sign that the BBC is acting at the government's behest, the BBC's former controller of editorial policy said. Well, it's very easy for Gary Lineker to say there's no problem with migration when he's the BBC's highest paid presenter with a 1.35 million salary from the BBC paid for by the people of Britain because in the because in Britain you need to pay what they call a license fee to the BBC to even own a television to watch any channel never mind the BBC it's the public in general who face the economic and financial consequences of ongoing migration who see the problem who live the problem of who face the consequences Richard Eyre who also served as a member of Ofcom's content board this is the government media regulator in, a, in truth government censor uh, told BBC Radio 4's Today PM programme that the BBC had no choice but to take action against Lineker after his tweets criticising the government's asylum policy. He said, I think it was inevitable. Lineker has the letters BBC written across his forehead and yet he's plunged right into the most controversial story of the day. The fact is this was an immediate issue which Tim Davey, the Director General, could not sit on over the weekend. He had to solve it this week. He's clearly tried to solve it and reached an agreement with Gary Lineker. They failed. So this has been the BBC decision. Whether this story moves on depends on what Gary Lineker says himself in the next few hours. It's inevitable now that having in effect not sacked him but removed him temporarily at least, the BBC will not come under a torrent of criticism saying it's acting under the government's behest. Former BBC Newsnight host Emily Maitlis, who was herself reprimanded by the BBC for sharing a tweet the corporation viewed as controversial, said her former employer could face a much, much bigger battle after its Gary Lineker decision. I'm not sure when they suggested to Gary Lineker he step back from Match of the Day, she said. Uh, she tweeted even, the BBC realised it might be starting a much, much bigger battle. Former BBC executive Richard Sambrook said there is a lot of confusion around whether freelance broadcasters such as Gary Lineker, who do not who do not work in news, should be subject to the same rules as permanent staff. Mr Sambrook, who was director of news at the BBC and director of BBC Global News in the BBC World Service, was asked Lineker's was asked Lineker's comments. 
He replied, I think the language he used was unnecessarily provocative, but the wider question here is whether a sports presenter in his private life has to be banned by BBC policies. Traditionally, the BBC would always want that to be the case, but I think in the current day and age, when we live in a world full of social media, when journalism broadcasters have the ability to go and work for other people or do their own podcasts and all the rest of it, that's a bit of an unrealistic expectation. Lineker's comments were criticised by Downing Street and a raft of Tory heavyweights, including Home Secretary Suella Braverman and James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary. The former Leicester striker has a history of controversial political interventions on everything from Brexit and the Tories to protests by Just Stop Oil and the fate of Shemima Begum. A BBC spokesman said, the BBC has been in extensive discussions with Gary and his team in recent days. We have said that we consider his recent social media activity to be a breach of our guidelines. The BBC has decided that he will step back from presenting much of the day until we've got an agreed and clear position on his use of social media. When it comes to leading our football and sports coverage, Gary is second to none. We have never said that Gary should be in an opinion-free zone or that he can't have a view on issues that matter to him, but we have said that he should keep well away from taking sides on party, political issues or political controversies. The BBC has faced repeated calls to sack Lineker over his anti-Tory tweets while Mr Cleverly this morning while Mr Cleverly swiped that the ex-England footballer was desperate to gain attention Labour leader Sakir Starmer speaking on a visit to Glasgow defended Lineker's right to make his political views known a Labour spokesman said the BBC's cowardly decision to take Gary Lineker off air is an assault on free speech in the face of political pressure Tory politicians lobbying to get people sacked for disagreeing uh, with government policies should be laughed at not pandered to the BBC should rethink Former Culture Secretary Nadine Doris also weighed in. The TV host and MP said that failure to fire Lineker would mean the BBC was only paying lip service to its remit of impartiality. I think it's the fair thing to do and I actually believe that it's the moral and compassionate thing to do and I've made that argument multiple times. Mr Sunak himself insisted his government's actions on the channel migrant crisis were the moral and compassionate thing to do. Suella Braverman accused Lineker of, dimin of diminishing the tragedy of the Holocaust as ministers engaged in an open row with the BBC star. She said she found the comments offensive because her husband is Jewish. My children are therefore directly descendant from people who were murdered in gas chambers during the Holocaust, she told the BBC's political thinking podcast. To kind of throw out those kind of kind of flippant analogies diminishes the unspeakable tragedy that millions of people went through and I don't think anything that is happening in the UK today can come close to what happened in the Holocaust so I find it a lazy and unhelpful comparison to make. Lineker criticising the government's new asylum plans Lineker tweeted there is no huge influx we take far fewer refugees than other major European countries this is just an immeasurably cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to so that we're going to move on now to I'll come back COVID to this subject theory. and this migration the week later on. COVID lab leak is conspiracy theory becoming concrete truth. The contentious debate over the origins of the coronavirus took another turn over the weekend after a new report from the US Department of Energy pointed to an accidental laboratory leak in China. The shift in the department's view came after a new classified intelligence report was provided to the White House and key members of Congress, which was first reported by the Wall Street Journal. Its conclusions are supported by the FBI, which believes with moderate confidence moderate, that the virus first emerged accidentally from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, a Chinese lab that works on coronaviruses. The New York Times has reported that some officials briefed on the new intelligence contained in the Energy Department report said that it was relatively weak and that its conclusions were made with low confidence. A low confidence assessment generally means that the information obtained is not reliable enough or is too fragmented to make a more definitive analytic judgment 
or that there is not enough information available to draw a more robust conclusion, said CNN. Nevertheless, the latest assessment further adds to the divide in the US government over whether the COVID-19 pandemic began in China in 2019 as the result of a lab leak or whether it emerged naturally, said the news network. The various intelligence agencies have been split on the matter for years. Four other US intelligence agencies, including the National Intelligence Council, have maintained their belief that the virus most likely emerged through natural transmission, probably via the large food and live animal market in Wuhan. However, the Department of Energy report lends more attention to a belief that was once considered, and by some still is, to be little more than a fringe theory, said Forbes. Most mass media have reported the lab leak debate as a bitter debate between two groups of scientists, said Slate. In fact, the debate is asymmetrical. On the one side, the overwhelming weight of opinion among virologists, epidemiologists, evolutionary biologists and other scientists with experience and expertise is that COVID reached humans directly from an animal host or hosts. Although a few such experts have supported the lab leak side, added the magazine, the most prominent proponents of a lab leak origin are those who lack relevant expertise or experience. The New York Times argued that how the pandemic began has become the divisive line of intelligence reporting and recent congressional reports have not been bipartisan. Many Republicans in Congress have been ramping up calls for a proper investigation into the lab leak theory. Interestingly, Chinese authorities have repeatedly pushed back against claims that the virus came from a laboratory, calling the theory a lie that has no basis in science and is politically motivated. In response to the latest Energy Department findings, a spokesperson for China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Mao Ning, highlighted the authoritative and scientific conclusion reached after a 2021 field mission between Chinese and World Health Organization experts who determined the lab leak hypothesis was highly unlikely. Yet the WHO mission has been widely criticized as lacking transparency. Right now, there is not a definitive answer that has emerged from the intelligence community on this question, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told CNN. Some elements of the intelligence community have reached conclusions on one side, some on the other. A number of them have said they just don't have enough information to be sure. Sullivan said US President Joe Biden had directed the National Laboratories, which are part of the Department of Energy, to be brought into the assessment to determine the origins of the outbreak. The lab leak debate has raged for three years now without reaching universally accepted resolution, said Slate. What is more, there may not be a conclusive answer for a while. It takes 29 years to definitively identify the source of Ebola, or it took 29 years, uh, 26 years for HIV and AIDS, and 15 years for SARS. There's another story here on the same subject on Off Guardian, which has done some great articles since the COVID hopes began. This is called Lab Leaks and Brick Walls. The COVID was a lab leak story was always a backdoor official narrative that reinforced the reality of the pandemic while appearing to be a suppressed alternative. You know, one of those suppressed alternatives that ends up in the Wall Street Journal. It's now going to be used to finally bury any hope that 2020 to 21 will wake us up to the full modern reality of geopolitics. Remember the grotesque spectacle of supposedly ideologically opposed world leaders all in lockstep promoting the non-existent pandemic, giving the same advice, talking the same talk? Yeah, they'd much rather you didn't remember that. Do you recall how suddenly it was so obvious what they all were? Little actors with their lines carefully written for them, scurrying about doing as they're bidden by forces we had heretofore barely realised were operational. They suddenly looked so small and ridiculous, didn't they, in their masks and biohazard costumes, speaking with one voice that belonged to none of them. We could see they were just employees towing some company line. All of them, east and west, left and right, Putin and Biden, Trump and Xi, all differences forgotten, all rivalries put aside. 
just to sell a lie and kill some people with solutions to a problem they knew did not exist. Remember the shock factor as realisation dawned. My God, they are literally all in this together and not even pretending otherwise. Remember how it started to wake us up like we had never been before. We had to abandon all our heroes because they all abandoned us or made it clear they had never really been with us. They took the Covid shilling and got in line to read from the Covid script and forced us to face the fact they had never been what we thought they were. That the world in fact had never been what we thought it was. I think Covid was supposed to launch a brand new geopolitical narrative. I think this is the, the author of the article. I think it was to be the end of conflict and the start of the world coming together to face a common threat. And I think like good little actors, our global leaders and our tame media were all given new scripts and new motivations. Okay guys, in this scene you're no longer enemies. You're seeing that human beings need to work together to overcome terrible existential threats. And action. The plan was to get that new normal communitarian nightmare world all locked in place before we could react or even get a bead on what was going on. It was Agenda 2013, quick time, six months, not ten years, a bold headlong dash instead of the usual steady creep. It was crazy, and it didn't work. The fear factor never got high enough. The obvious non-existence of the threat became too clear too quickly to too many. There was pushback. They had to halt and retreat. And today the new normal remains just a half-built prison. They're still working at it, but they have gone back to slow and steady in the 2030 goal. One shortage, one act of censorship, one tiny new legislative incursion at a time. And meanwhile, what they really need from us is that we all stop thinking about what we just saw. It didn't happen. You didn't see supposed autonomous and diametrically oppositional world leaders all suddenly stop being autonomous and oppositional, as if by magic. You didn't see them adopt totally new personas on cue and meekly start selling the same pandemic lies and culling their populations with the same lockdown and useless toxic vaccines. It did not look for all the world as if they were all on the same side working for the same goals. You didn't get any kind of glimpse behind the curtain. You didn't suddenly get to see how superficial and performative global politics must be. The new normal please it was just the old normal okay and frankly it would be grateful if you stopped using that particular phrase the great reset what even was that nothing no you are mistaken imagining things being a conspiracy theorist global politics is not performative conflicts cannot all be turned off in a second when it becomes convenient to do so and any impression they can is purely accidental or imaginary in fact look over there a war has started and we can't stop or prevent it see all nice and old normal oh and okay Covid was a lab leak bioweapon. Like, we're, we're just going to admit it, okay? It was those pesky Russians, or maybe those awful Americans, or the Chinese, or maybe the Iranians. Could be ISIS, I guess. Or Israel. Pick your side. Any side. We don't really mind which. Just so long as you totally forget the most important lesson you were ever going to learn about the nature of geopolitics. Because if you do remember it, we're rather screwed and you'll be able to set yourself free. We don't want that, do we? What a dreadful unintended consequence of our crazy little Covid gamble that would be. An awakened free world. Horrible. No, boys and girls and others. Don't be playing with any of that nonsense. Just come back to what you know. The old show. The familiar songs. Just keep your seat in our theatre. You know you want to, really. It's warm in here kind of reassuring just keep buying our tasty popcorn keep watching our shows cheer your chosen good guys hiss at your chosen baddies all we ask is you never ever notice that brick wall at the back or if you do notice it look away and pretend you don't and by the way have you ever thought that while prisons might not be free they are lovely and safe just a thought to leave with you for future reference all this talk of a lab engineered virus is irrelevant because as i pointed out many times 
there is no virus. Viruses have never been proven to exist, as I explain in great detail in Reality Check. So, if a virus has never been proven to exist, then there cannot be any lab-engineered virus either. Because you can't just invent a virus from nothing. There still needs to be one for it to be engineered. So when you look at the three possibilities, a natural virus, an accidental lab leak, it's very clear that COVID-19, the hoax of COVID-19, was planned way back, years before it started, at least far back as 2010, which I talk about in my new book, Reality Check, available at pay-per-view.uk for pre-order. I've got three whole chapters in the book about the COVID hoax, and a big part of one of the chapters is the psychological manipulation which made the COVID hoax possible. And so if it was planned, the virus is not natural. So that that's ruled out. An accidental lab leak, well, if the virus was planned, then it's not accidental. A deliberate lab leak, well, what that would mean is would have to be proven to exist in the first place. And a lot of the focus on the deliberate lab leak theory from the Wuhan lab is looking at the genome sequencing of the virus. And they say it's rare genome sequencing and they say they found things like the spike protein and the what they call the furin cleavage site. And I saw a an expert, not a virologist, but an expert in viruses in an interviewed saying without this furin cleavage site there could be no pandemic. The furin cleavage site suggests it was an engineered virus and that's what allowed the virus to, to be as transmissible as we were told it was. All these things are discovered via genome sequencing. They don't actually have a virus under a microscope and examine it and find, oh, it's got a spike protein, oh, it's got a furin cleavage site. There it is, we can see it. That never happens. These are discoveries, in inverted commas, of the genome sequencing. So how do they do the genome sequencing? Well, one of two ways. Either they take fluid from a sick person. Let's say, for example, lung fluid. If you're talking about a respiratory virus, which is what we're told COVID is. They extract some genetic material and our lungs are full of all kinds of different sources of genetic material. You could have genetic material from lung cells, from fungal genetic material, bacterial, other microorganisms, from stuff you breathe in. There's various sources of material in the lungs. They don't extract a virus and analyze it from the lung fluid. They just take some material from the fluid. They enter the details of the genetic material they've taken from the lung fluid into a computer program, which constructs the rest of the genome of whatever virus they're looking for. The other way they do it is to take fluid from a tissue culture. I've described this process before and I go into it in more detail in the new book, but very simply, they take some bodily fluid, again, let's say lung fluid, they inoculate that onto tissue in a culture, which is most commonly vero cells, monkey kidney cells, and they take away a vast amount of the nutrition in many cases, and they also add drugs like antibiotics and antifungal drugs which are particularly toxic to kidney tissue and then when the the tissue the cells start to degrade as a result they say that it was caused by a virus they don't do a control experiment to see if the cells degrading was caused by the starvation and poisoning 
and then they take fluid from that culture which has various sources of genetic material in it you've got the genetic material in the bodily fluid lung fluid you've got the kidney cells themselves you've got often blood from a baby calf fetal bovine serum which is added to add extra nutrition but they usually uh, use a lot less than the recommended amount and so how can you know from that mix what's what how can you know what is viral genetic material if there's any if there's a virus in there and the genetic material that's already in there you can't the, the only way to do it would be to extract the virus from the bodily fluid before you inoculate it onto the culture but that's never done it can be done the technology exists to do it the equipment exists to do it but they don't do that so they take fluid from the culture they extract some bits of genetic material into that into a computer and again it constructs the rest of the genome so all the talk about a lab engineered virus and them saying well we looked at the virus and we saw this we saw the furin cleavage site we saw the spikes we saw this and that and we think from that that it's a lab engineered virus that's all based on the computer created genome and different computer programs in different genome sequencing experiments for the same virus come to different conclusions and that's why they're said to be last time I looked 5.6 million genome submissions to Gizaid which is a viral genome database for the COVID virus alone and any one of them could be called a variant that's where the variants come from now how can you have such different results for one virus they should be the same surely and one of the key criteria for anything to be scientific is that you can reproduce the same results every time under the same conditions but you can with viral genomes but they get around that by calling them variants they say all oh, the virus is mutated it's a variant it's not it's unscientific is what it is so there's nothing physical at all about the analysis of a lab engineered virus all based on the computer program and there's a few good analogies here for how this is done this one is from dr andrew kaufman who i've mentioned a few times in this podcast before and he gives this analogy sequencing a viral genome is like reading a book the letters in the book make up words sentences and paragraphs letters of dna form promoters genes and chromosomes the genome is the entire sequence of letters if you have the book it's just a matter of reading it but what if you don't have the book and aren't sure the book even exists imagine you were looking for a rare science fiction book from the 20th century that was only rumored to exist you go to the library and ask for help in finding the book. The librarian brings you to a room in the basement where you find 116 different titles with multiple copies for each book. Unfortunately, all the books have been shredded, but the librarian assures you that all the pieces of the book are there. So how many pieces you're gonna to have to go through? 56.5 million pieces of paper. This is a reference to the SARS-CoV-2 virus genome the virus they say causes COVID-19 and how that was discovered they say 56 and a half million pieces of paper you decide to try to reconstruct the book you begin by matching up pieces of paper by overlapping the letters tape them together into longer and longer pieces not all matches make grammatical sense many of the assembled fragments can be matched to many other pieces you make multiple 
variations using up every piece of paper. Rules of grammar tell us when words are constructed correctly and coherently, but when jumbling up letters for a genome, how do we know if the sequence is correct? After several months matching the bits of paper, you construct contiguous strings of letters known as contigs. You finally take together over one million bits of paper. Many of them are long enough to create several novels. Could one of these novels be the rumoured lost book? How would you know which one? How could you be sure if you've never checked it against the actual book? You decide to pick the longest one and call it a day. Congratulations on completing your task. You found the lost unknown book. Or have you? And here's another analogy that I found. You can, of course, claim that something you've spliced together by combining bits of RNA shows 99.9% similarity with something that has also been spliced together in the lab in the same way. But if you don't have an example of the already existing phenomenon derived from an infected host in nature, then this is a meaningless statement for the purposes of determining the cause of disease. I can paint an exact copy of a landscape painting of a particular vista, but that does not in itself confirm that the original painting I have copied is an accurate representation of the vista in reality. And the analogy could have ended by saying, or that the vista even exists in reality. And here's a final analogy from Dr. Tom Cowan, who, is, who again I've mentioned in this podcast and I mentioned in the new book. A group of researchers claim to have found a unicorn because they found a piece of a hoof, a hair from a tail, and a snippet of a horn. They then add that information into a computer and program it to recreate the unicorn. And then they claim this computer recreation is the real unicorn. Of course, they had never actually seen a unicorn, so could not possibly have examined its genetic makeup to compare their samples with the actual unicorn's hair, hooves, and horn. Again, different computer programs will come up with different versions of the imaginary unicorn, so they come together as a group and decide which is the real imaginary unicorn. Unicorns have never been proven to exist because they don't exist in the same with viruses they've also never been proven to exist so until a virus covid or otherwise has been proven to exist then any talk of an engineered virus is irrelevant rare genome sequencing it doesn't matter what the scene of genome sequencing is if it's a computer creation and it's not extracted directly from within a virus particle, then it means nothing. Another COVID-related article here, this is in The Telegraph. Matt Hancock's plan to frighten the pants off everyone about COVID. This is one of the revelations from the lockdown files as they become known. Throughout the course of the pandemic, officials and ministers wrestled with how to ensure the public complied with ever-changing lockdown restrictions. One weapon in their arsenal was fear. We frightened the pants off everyone, Matt Hancock suggested during one WhatsApp message with his media advisor. The then health secretary was not alone in his desire to scare the public into compliance. The WhatsApp messages were seen by the Telegraph and they show how several members of Mr. Hancock's team engaged in a kind of project fear in which they spoke of how to utilise fear and guilt to make people obey the lockdown. An Imperial College survey of COVID infections in the community called the REACT programme and led by the eminent Professor Lord Darcy provided positive news for Mr Hancock and his team. The study they referred to appeared to have been a survey showing decreasing prevalence of COVID. Through May and an R number, the reproduction rate of the virus of just 0.57. The study was in line with an Office for National Statistics survey, but when the media focused on a separate report by Public Health England and Cambridge University showing a high transmission rate in some parts of the country, prompting speculation that local lockdowns could follow, Mr Hancock said that that's no bad thing. 
Sir Patrick Valance, the government's chief scientific advisor, agreed. On June 5, 2020, there were 1,020 reported daily cases of COVID and 160 deaths. With recorded COVID cases now down to just 689, the government was days away from reopening pubs, restaurants and hairdressing salons. But on June 30, 2020, Leicester had just gone into a local lockdown and a WhatsApp group called Local Action Committee and Medine, Mr Hancock's special advisor on policy, reported back to the group a rumour that Milton Keynes may be the next town plunged into a local lockdown. Jamie and Joku Goodwin, Mr Hancock's media advisor, replied that it would not be unhelpful for the public to think they could be next. Miss Dean appeared to start the conversation by forwarding messages sent to her about the Milton Keynes rumour. Baroness Harding, who ran the test and trace scheme, replied... The government has started publishing a so-called watch list of the worst affected areas in the country, not least to justify and explain to the public the need for local lockdowns. But on October 7th, 2020, ministers scrapped the list's publication, the thinking seemingly being that the numbers were increasing and that it would cause residents and politicians in places like Leicester to question why they had been singled out for local lockdowns. In a WhatsApp group called MH Top Team that involved a number of advisors and civil servants, the group agreed to scrap the surveillance data watch list because no such local interventions were being planned. In a conversation with the civil servant Damon Poole, Mr Hancock's media advisor said that failing to publish the data could be turned to their advantage because it helps the narrative that things are really bad. Boris Johnson, then the Prime Minister, had promised that families would be reunited at Christmas, the first since the pandemic struck in early 2020. He said forgoing long-awaited reunions would be inhuman and against the instincts of many people in this country. But behind the scenes, his ministers and officials were increasingly aware that vast swathes of the public faced a grave disappointment and that the Johnson administration would take the blame for their frustration. The solution in December was to frighten the pants off everyone, in Hancock's words, with the declaration of a new strain of COVID-19 known as the Alpha or Kent variant. In a conversation between Mr Hancock and Mr Poole on December the 13th, the pair discussed how to survive the coming backlash and storm. On the day, there were 18,409 cases of COVID recorded and 410 deaths. Five days later, on December the 18th, Mr Johnson would scrap his planned five-day Christmas amnesty in an about turn. The conversation started with a discussion about a fear that Sadiq Khan, the London mayor, could attack the government for plunging the capital into its own lockdown, just as Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, had waged a battle in his city a few months earlier. The pair discussed a withering leader in the Mail on Sunday before Mr Hancock seemingly expressed a worry that bad news on the new variant might be knocked off the top of the agenda by wrangles over Brexit. That led them into a discussion about when to deploy the new variant, although Mr Hancock was seemingly wary that it could have led to closing schools. One of Mr Hancock's statements in the WhatsApp messages was, when do we deploy the new variant? If it's a variant, it will just appear when it appears. Why do you need to deploy it? The article continues, in January 2021, Britain is in a third national lockdown with schools shut and people told to work from home. Four days later, on January the 10th, Mr Hancock and Simon Case, the cabinet secretary and therefore the country's most powerful civil servant, discussed more stringent measures that they can introduce. They agreed that minor adjustments such as banning angling would be parodied galore so decided that fear and or guilt were vital tools in ensuring compliance. They discussed making mask wearing mandatory in all settings because it had a very visible impact. Not because it protects from a virus then. The article continues, another example given is the reopening of the Nightingale Hospital in London, which had been built hurriedly at the start of the pandemic for a rush of COVID patients. In reality, the Nightingale Hospitals across the UK were barely used. As the alternative media on the internet were pointing out at the time, the article continues, the one in London reopened on January 12, 2021 for non-COVID patients, but only a handful were admitted. A few more articles here on the Matt Hancock subject in lockdown. This is in the, the Telegraph. 
Britain was failed by a pro-lockdown clique incapable of admitting its errors. Very rarely do we come across a cache of documents giving an unvarnished glimpse of the personalities as well as the policies which shape our lives. Britain's 30-year rule shows us memos and scribbled comments, but with no hint of the conversations behind them. Richard Crossman's posthumous diaries were so explosive the ministers tried to suppress publication, but even that was just one man's view. Matt Hancock won't be thanked for it, but he has done the nation a great service by keeping perhaps the richest documentary source disclosed in recent years. Conversations in and around 10 Downing Street would never normally be recorded, but Hancock's WhatsApp messages offer a real-time record of decision-making, complete with gossip, reactions, documents, conversations and emojis. They have several stories, to be sure, but their real value lies in something greater, a psychological profile of a group of men who would untrammeled power over the lives of millions. How would any group behave in such circumstances? The lockdown files let us find out. After reading thousands of these messages, the big theme is far more than the sum of the scandals. There's no end of those. At one stage, we see that a convicted sex offender is suggested to bankroll a Matt Hancock leadership bid, which, it's explained, would be fine because he's a lovely chap who went to St. Paul's and is is regarded fondly. There's plenty more chaos and skullduggery to be exposed in coming days, but the real value in the lockdown files lies in far more than the sum of the headlines. We see how a group of men given complete power and acting without scrutiny move from being rational and cautious to dangerously gung-ho. They seem to revel in police being given marching orders to go after the general public. Even Simon Case, head of the civil service, says how much we'd like to see the face of first-class travellers incarcerated in shoebox hotels. So how did they get to this stage? The WhatsApp messages show that things started by pointing out a contradiction in lockdown theory. It was not just a flaw, but the flaw. The models did not factor in just how much people watched the news and stayed home. A treasury official lays it out. If businesses are seeing revenues collapsing, it suggests people are actually complying and not going into restaurants, shops, etc. So how much additional benefit does locking down actually get you? The article continues. It wasn't just a hunch. Data were then shared with the WhatsApp group showing that 54% of the public were socially distancing and 56% no longer attended social gatherings. So Brits were being sensible, hunkering down. But this, it seems, was secret just for us all to see, they were told. Still, the WhatsApp group was behaving as it should, a genuine exchange of views in a complex and fast-moving environment. Then, lockdown happened. Fast forward a few months and it was becoming embarrassingly hard to prove a link between lockdown and controlling the virus. Sweden was doing pretty well in spite of having kept schools, pubs and restaurants open. Rather than ask them what there was to learn, Hancock became enraged by what he called the fucking Sweden argument and wanted it quashed. Supply three or four bullet points of why Sweden is wrong, he asked of his aides, not whether it was wrong, why it was wrong. In coming days, this newspaper will show the treatment meted out not just to lockdown critics but ministers asking awkward questions about what all this would lead to. This shows the groupthink atmosphere, how hard it was even as a cabinet member to urge caution. By the end, ministers were left in no doubt that anyone who asked questions would be seen by the number 10 team as a problem, or even the enemy, even on occasion the Prime Minister himself. It's a classic study of groupthink, but decades of study into so-called cognitive dissonance and political leadership shows we should expect this. The bigger the states, the stronger the denial. At a certain stage in the high-stakes drama, the politician starts to see their policies and objects as not just correct but heroic and their criticism confused, malign or ideologically motivated. A poor backdrop for error correction. Public opinion also exerted a huge gravitational pull. The original pandemic plans imagined ministers being guided by science but did not envisage a situation where panic would see people demanding lockdown, as they saw happening in other countries and resisting any realisation of rules. The temptation to follow public opinion even led to the collapse of parliamentary opposition. 
as Sir Keir Starmer rubber-stamped every decision. Just a handful of voices were asking difficult questions or arguing for restraint, a small enough number to be easily dismissed as cranks. There were signs of Boris Johnson growing alarmed at the lockdown machismo of his advisers. To Hancock's horror, he ended up taking advice from two academics, Ragibali and Carl Hennigan, who spotted that the graphs used to sell the second lockdown to the public were based on out-of-date data. If this illustrates anything, Johnson says it is that red teams can work but need to be formally established. He was right. An effective, the article says, an effective red team was the missing element in Britain's pandemic response, a unit of experts to identify and flag up flaws in the government's argument. This was the only way of getting through what had become by then a powerful clique of pro-lockdown ministers and officials to out-to-rubbish minority reports. If decisions are made in secret with the cabinet left in the dark and the opposition having abandoned its post, there is no one to scrutinise. The whole democratic apparatus was suspended, so nothing to stop big mistakes from becoming bigger. The problem with ignoring all lockdown questions until the official COVID inquiry reports is that no lessons are learned and nothing will get fixed, leaving the country vulnerable to repeating the same mistakes. The new pandemic response needs to factor in not just the behavioural response of the public, but of politicians, especially if they think no one is looking. It was impossible to guess before just how they'd behave if they thought no one was looking, but thanks to the lockdown files, we certainly now know. And this is another article, this time in the Express, about lockdown and the lockdown files. Lockdown files message is clear. We must never give power to power-hungry people. The week's lockdown files show Boris Johnson feared Britain's second lockdown because he knew the death data was very wrong. He also wanted to lift the restrictions, but the public apparently, it says here, wasn't ready. They also reveal that masks in schools were introduced to avoid an argument with Nicola Sturgeon, that care homes were neglected, and the inhumane rules that kept married couples apart were discussed, but despite their devastating effects were kept anyhow. Why? Because there was no one to challenge the power-hungry government machinery that was out of its depth. Rules of six were introduced without evidence, but ministers went ahead anyway. It was easier to communicate than a rule of seven, eight or nine. It was clear that these policies were being made on the hoof, but a silence of science meant they were essentially unchallenged. When we pointed out, the newspaper says, that the lockdown in November 2020 was based on misleading data, something Boris Johnson said was very wrong, the government still went ahead. The lockdown files are littered with flippant remarks, derogatory comments and disdain for the public. Civil servants mocked quarantined holidaymakers and politicians were laughing and joking about locking us up. But the lockdown files also show the results of putting medical decisions in the hands of people with no medical decision making experience or expertise so long as they were nice chaps and went to the right school. They also reveal what happens when you have impotent advisors who do not challenge the decisions and scientists with ideas logical viewpoints based on engineering fear and repressive measures. Looking back, ministers such as Gavin Williamson wonder whether they should have resigned. The answer is yes, but it's a bit late now. But all along, ministers thought it was brilliant. The police were fining the public for Covid law breaches, but these were ridiculous, repressive laws that were bad for everyone. We tried our best to counter the corrosive effects of social engineering. We at least managed to stave off the Christmas 2021 Omicron variant lockdown, but emergency powers afforded by the Coronavirus Act gave power to just a few people and their merry band of advisors who were drunk on power. Restrictions, lockdowns and travel measures changed over 200 times in 2020. No one could keep up with the changes. By the time one measure had come in, it was on to the next. For example, the rules on going out to a pub or a restaurant were changed. 20 times up to September 2020. Many didn't know the rules and didn't care. Some statements like closing the borders with Wales appear to have been taken from an episode of Faulty Towers. 
In 2020, Sir Graham Brady MP tabled an amendment requiring a parliamentary vote as soon as reasonably practicable for any new COVID measures. He understood the pervasive problems of the coronavirus out that were so damaging to society. It handed control to the likes of Matt Hancock, who, while reveling in the attention, were threatening the public with £10,000 fines. Contrast this with Sweden, whose constitution prevents interference by ministers of government in affairs that are assigned to various public authorities. The Swedish public agencies are set up outside of central government control, so instead of the UK system where agencies and their civil servants act as stooges to prop up the government's inadequacies, they get on with doing their job in the public's interest. Consequently, the Swedish government had limited power to intervene in the ongoing business of its public agencies. A light-touch COVID response was all that was needed to steer us through the pandemic. This is why we now call for legislation to prevent the Coronavirus Act and any similar act from ever being enacted again, to avoid individual ministers from having the power to intervene directly in the day-to-day lives of their citizens. We should also ensure that no government can openly or covertly persecute its citizens lawfully expressing doubt about its policies. Those who prevent a critical debate in parliamentary votes enacted in self-interest should be held accountable for their actions. We should never again give up our individual rights, and particularly our children's rights, to individuals who, in haste, created boxed policies that would have repercussions for decades to come. If we don't act swiftly to prevent legislation akin to the Coronavirus Act, there is nothing to stop the debacle and restrictions and lockdowns being handed to a few ministers again. Change of subject entirely now. This is in the Daily Mail about asteroids. Invisible asteroids can strike Earth at any minute. Scientists warn an unknown number of space rocks could be heading for Earth hidden in the glare of our sun. It was the biggest asteroid to strike Earth in more than a century, yet no one saw the Chelyabinsk meteor coming. When the space rock smashed into western Russia in February 2013, it generated a shockwave as strong as 35 Hiroshima atomic bombs, leaving more than 1,600 people injured. But how come no one detected the 60-foot, 19 meters wide meteor heading straight for us? But how come no one detected the 60-foot, 19 meters wide meteor heading straight for us? The answer, experts say, is that it was hidden by the glare of our sun. Worse still, it will not be the only one, as they warn that an unknown number of space rocks could be heading for Earth undetected. Asteroids the size of the Chelyabinsk meteor strike Earth roughly every 50 to 100 years, warned Richard Moisson, the European Space Agency's head of planetary defence. Injuries caused by airbursts or similar events could be prevented if people are informed of an oncoming impact and its predicted effects. With advance warning, local authorities will be able to advise the public to keep well away from windows and glass. So just how can astronomers spot these invisible asteroids lurking in the sun's glare? Well, the European Space Agency is set to launch its NEOMAR, near-Earth object mission in the infrared, orbiting observatory later this decade, which will act as an early warning system to detect and monitor any asteroid coming towards Earth from the sun's direction. NEOMAR will be located at the L1 Lagrange point between Earth and the sun. Undisturbed by Earth's atmosphere, its infrared telescope will be able to spot asteroids 65 feet, 20 meters and larger, currently lurking in the sunlight. Moisel added, ESA's upcoming NEOMAR mission will detect asteroids like Chelyabinsk coming from the same region in the sky as the Sun, filling a vital gap in our current abilities to predict and plan for hazardous impacts. The Space Agency admits that there is a possibility that an asteroid even bigger than NEOMAR 
that what Nehemiah can detect could impact Earth from the day side, but such a scenario is less likely. This is because the larger the asteroid, the fewer there are in the solar system and the easier they are to detect. So much so that almost all asteroids larger than half a mile wide, one kilometer, have already been discovered. However, new surveys are beginning to peer in the other direction and revealing more NEOs, including never before seen asteroids. NEOs being near Earth objects. In 2026, the US Space Agency's Near-Earth Object Surveyor Space Telescope is due to launch to help detect more of these asteroids. It will be positioned between the Earth and Sun to better spot space rocks that right now cannot be seen because of their positions in space. According to NASA-funded experts, some asteroids can also sneak up on us thanks to a quirk of the Earth's rotation that makes them seem like they are barely moving, making them hard to detect. And on the, sub and on the subject of outer space, here's an interesting article. This is on msn.com. Scientists discover evidence of eight alien civilizations. Experts have deployed a new high-tech approach to analyze 480 hours of data collected from 820 stars by one of the largest telescopes on the planet. AI was used to identify eight signals that scientists claim have been caused by communications technology from alien civilizations. However, the data was collected in 2016 and the stars involved have now gone quiet. They are still being monitored in the hope of finding some signs of life, but the little green men are unlikely to appear anytime soon. The alien bombshell was revealed by the mathematician and physicist is Peter Ma from the University of Toronto in the journal Nature Astronomy. He said that nearly three million of the signals were discarded as Earth-based interference, but the team was left with eight alien candidates drifting signals originating from some extraterrestrial source. There is the possibility with the alien invasion narrative that there could be a fake invasion staged using holographic technology and other means of manipulation including craft which is not accepted to exist in the public arena but does in the deep deep levels of the military intelligence networks doing things that we're told human built craft can't do to make it seem as if there is a real alien presence and uh, an invasion to justify a global response see covid to meet the threat of the invasion when actually it's just an excuse to impose fascism which is exactly what the covid hoax was about before i give my analysis of all these stories i just want to say a few words about migration given that this gary lineker story has obviously been a huge story and it's an important subject as well marxist hero and author saul alinsky wrote the issue is never the issue for example Abortion is not the issue. Reducing the world's population is the issue. Gender identity is not the issue. Confusing genders to fuse gender en route to no gender is the real issue. Human caused climate change is not the issue. Transforming society using the live human caused climate change is the, as the excuse is the real issue. And the same with COVID-19. Migration is not the issue. Exploiting migrants to justify an influx of people into a country in order to erode national identity and culture is the issue. I've pointed out over the years that the plan is a global monoculture. To achieve that, you need to destroy individual cultures first, and this is one reason for migration. Another reason is the crime rate. America has opened up the southern border to allow migration and immigration from Mexico and other places in Central and South America for years now. Britain has been allowing unfettered migration, as has Germany, supported by Chancellor Merkel. Consequences of unchecked migration include criminals like MS-13, a South American crime and drug gang in North America, and grooming, raping gangs. They're called grooming gangs, they should be called raping gangs, in places like Rotherham in Britain and other places in Britain as well. 
look at the consequences for people in Sweden where there are no-go zones, where even law enforcement won't go because of the criminal migrants operating in that area and what, what these migrants do. The more crime, the more excuses to impose Orwellian in position to protect against the crime, or, you know, on the surface to protect against the crime. During a cost-of-living crisis, migration causes even more problems economically and financially. At a time when house prices are prohibitively high, migration increases the demand for housing, which increases the price. The woke don't do the maths. They think you can keep pouring water into a cup ongoing and it won't overflow. They say we should allow ever more migrants into the country while in the same breath complain about the lack of housing, hospital beds and jobs for the native population. They can't see the contradiction amidst their fake self-purity. The population who are struggling see migrants being handed free housing and benefits, which increases animosity towards migrants, which generates and increases the necessary divide and rule which any tyranny needs to control a population. So a bit of history to the migration situation we're seeing now. In September 2000 in America, an organization created in 1997 called the Project for the New American Century produced a document entitled Rebuilding America's Defenses, Strategy, Forces and Resources for a New Century. The organization should have been called the Project for the New Israeli Century because that would be more accurate. The document talked of a grand strategy which it said must be advanced as far into the future as possible and said that the US must fight and decisively win multiple simultaneous major theater wars as a core mission. The document listed countries for regime change and invasion, including Iraq, Iran, Libya, Syria, North Korea and China. And of course we were told that COVID came out of China. China's been a major cult country since at least the Mao Revolution in China which was instigated as I to allow the cult to incubate a control system in China which could be advanced a lot quicker than in the West and once perfected would be rolled out as a global control system and of course we saw in 2020 and 21 how similar much of the world became to China as a result of the COVID hoax. A policy document, a clean break, a new strategy for securing the realm, drawn up in 1996 for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who of course is now replaced by Benny Gantz, by a study group called Study Group on a New Israeli Strategy Toward 2000, led by Richard Pearl, who was involved in the project for the New American Century, uh, talks of invading Iraq seven years before the invasion and using a proxy war in Syria to achieve Israel's Middle East agenda. A proxy civil war was exactly the technique used by the West in their attempt to overthrow the regime of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. A speechwriter for the younger George Bush, called David Frum, from an organization called the American Enterprise Institute, wrote Bush's State of the Union speech in 2002, which said that there was an axis of evil, which was Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. This is two years after the project for the New American Century document, and one year before the invasion of Iraq on the now officially accepted, not least through the Chilcot inquiry, manufactured lie about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. The cult's agenda is long, long planned and not made up by the week or the month. Terrorism and terrorists are funded, armed and trained by the West to justify invasions and regime change abroad, Orwellian surveillance and control, and migration. 
And I'm not going to go into endless detail about the West's role in terrorism and how terrorist organisations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS were created by the West because I've done that in my first book, Pay-Per-View in Print. But you cannot separate 9-11 and other terrorist events since then from the migration we're seeing now. It's all part of a long planned agenda. So how do all these subjects today connect? Fear is the currency of control. When people are in fear, they will look outside of themselves for someone or something to save them from what they fear or have been manipulated to fear. The fear of migration comes from the fear of terrorism and the concern with seeing national identity and culture being eroded as more migrants enter the country. The fear of a lab-engineered virus is the fear that it will be even more transmissible and dangerous than a natural virus. The fear of asteroids and an alien invasion is the fear of being wiped out by the asteroid and being potentially attacked by entities who don't come in peace. There is another common theme between all these subjects and that is the totalitarian control they all justify. A global threat like a virus or alien invasion justifies a global response which is nothing more than an excuse to impose Orwellian fascism, the kind of which we saw in 2020 and 21. If you can get people in fear you can pretend to want to save them by offering them an apparent solution which just happens to advance your agenda for global fascist dictatorship. As I said in the last episode, questioning everything is the answer and that's why the central theme of reality check is questioning everything. Remaining calm is also essential because when you panic you stop thinking straight and you're not able in that state to analyse and assess information in a clear, balanced way. If people had done that in 2020 and looked at the evidence not only about the Covid hoax in terms of the PCR test, manipulation of figures and death certificate manipulation, but also the non-existence of the virus, then the Covid hoax would have been over in no time. People fell into fear and looked outside of themselves to people they trusted and wanted to believe, wanted to help them, the media and government who spoke the same language syllable for syllable and imposed fascism under the guise of protection. Terrorism legislation and surveillance works on the same principle. People fall into fear and anxiety about a terrorist threat and don't look at the quite considerable evidence that actually terrorist events are manipulated by military intelligence networks and the terrorists are funded, armed and trained by the West to commit terrorism to justify the very legislation, policies and surveillance imposed on the back of those events when, if they did look at all that, their response to the surveillance and Orwellian imposition would be likely very different. We need to take our minds back, in other words, our ability to form our own perceptions in a calm, clear way back. When people do that in enough numbers, then we can really start to get a grip on what's happening. And why, and what we, yes we, can do about it.